You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, maritime historians, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique biologically diverse ecosystems. And the Cordell Bank Sanctuary is just offshore of the KWMR listening radius, right off here off the Marin-Sonoma coast. You'll want to stick around for the entire show today. We have a very rich show. For most of the show, we're going to be talking about maritime history with Dr. Jim Delgado. And then later in the show, around 1.45, we'll have a short interview with David McGuire, of shark stewards telling us what's happening with white sharks. It's Sharktober time, and there have been some really interesting, very close-to-shore sightings in that area, in the Bay Area. So we'll hear a little bit more about that around 1.45 p.m. So it's going to be a full show. Sit back, relax, and then stay tuned to KWMR. show, we often talk about the biological assets that make the ocean so important to us, but the ocean has been more than just biological stories. It has a rich human history as well, which provide insight on how the ocean has been treated by us as humans overall throughout history. I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Jim Delgado, Director of the Maritime Heritage Program within NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program to talk about some of the most recent explorations happening in the greater Farallons off the San Francisco Bay Area. Jim is an accomplished maritime historian, and it's extremely hard to cover all of the accolades and publications in an introduction, but he has been participating in shipwreck shipwreck expeditions around the world, written and edited over 30 publications about maritime heritage, and is a leader in the field recognized worldwide. So I'm so thrilled to welcome back Jim. Jim Delgado, you're live on the air. Thank you, Jennifer. Good to be here. Thanks for calling us today. So it seems very appropriate today as All Souls Day on November 2nd to talk about the shipwreck graveyard right outside the Golden Gate. And you are a leading expert on this region. And I'm, I'm always thrilled to have you on the air because the stories you have are so intriguing. In the last uh, two years, you've been in the midst of cataloging an estimated 400 ships or so and plane wrecks in the greater Farallons region. And I wanted to just ask a little bit about the background on this project and how much do we know about these ships and what does the cataloging effort entail? Well, I'll start by saying that anything like this project is really a team effort, and there's all sorts of folks who have been not only participating in it, but actually have been leading the the way. Years ago, I was very fortunate uh, when I was with the National Park Service and was the historian for the Golden Gate National Recreation Area to work and to 
get to know, work with and to get to know a number of historians in the area. The, the late Jack Mason in Point Reyes was a wealth of knowledge, particularly about the early shipwrecks. So too uh, were the parks historian Diana Skiles, uh, later historians Dewey Livingston, and of course the, the folks that are there now at the park in Golden Gate. Not only uh, you know, were there those of us who worked in and around the park, but we met people who, as San Francisco historians, as Marin County historians, had done a great deal. I can remember Louis Tether in Marin County, for example, as being one of those folks who knew a lot. And then, of course, other historians like Richard Dillon and uh, the late Carl Cordham, founder of the San Francisco Maritime Museum, late curator Harlan Soten. So many of these folks, Raymond Aker, uh, Ed Vonderport, and all of these folks knew a great deal about the wrecks. Later, I was very privileged to work with Steve Haller, who today is the historian for Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and we did a, a book more years ago than I'd like to remember now called Shipwrecks at the Golden Gate. That was based on some research we'd done, not only for the Park Service, but for NOAA, for the then known as the Gulf of the Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary, to try to catalog the number of wrecks that were out there. We looked at shipwrecks that we felt might have left a trace on the seabed, whether they were close to shore or on a beach or all the way out in deeper water. And I think one of the first things we learned, even as we were writing and putting all that down, was there were so many wrecks whose stories we wouldn't know because we didn't know exactly where they lay. And indeed, we realized there were ships that had simply sailed out of the gate that had gone missing. And as to where exactly they lay, whether they were in the bounds of the park or the sanctuary, you know, that, that wasn't clear and perhaps they'd never be found. Since those days, and in the decades that followed, others really picked up the, 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 the challenge. And I think in particular, my good friend and colleague, Robert Schwemmer, who is the West Coast Regional Coordinator for Maritime Heritage for Sanctuaries. Bob, or Shipwreck Bob, as he's known to, to many of his friends and colleagues, is a very, you know, dedicated researcher with a vast maritime library that he's assembled through the years. Digging through the archives, Bob has come up with a list of more than 400 wrecks, which is uh, practically double the number Steve Haller and I thought might be. And with that kind of detailed record, the, the next step you have to take is to just go out and see what you can find. Now, other folks have gone out and looked. The National Park Service in the 1980s did a survey out in Drake's Bay. I was able to participate in that. We even went out around the point and dived on wrecks directly below the lighthouse. And so in that fashion, we were able to look at wrecks like the Shasta and the Pomo, whose bones both stick up out of the water um, inside the bay, uh, the submerged wrecks of the Munleon and the Hartwood, and the, the Richfield, uh, the buried remains of where we felt the Spanish galleon San Agustin rested. But uh, other vessels, hard to say, swallowed by the sand, particularly as you got closer to shore. Back in San Francisco, we did some work and found wrecks, some of which you didn't have to look hard to find. I mean, after all, the Frank Buck and the Lyman Stewart's engines stick out of the water at Land's End there. And when winter sands scoured Ocean Beach in San Francisco, the remains of the 1856 built 1878 wrecked medium clipper King Philip emerged and uh, recently have come out again with winter storms. But other than that, not much else. <laughs> Not much else. I wanted to mention I did invite Bob Schwimmer, and unfortunately he's on the road, and hopefully we can get him back for a future interview, but we're really happy that you could join us um, to talk about these West Coast findings. 
I wanted to start with one that's a little, um, it's been, it comes in the news every once in a while. And I looked back to my notes and it's all about the USS Independence. And there was a publication um, that came out around 1999, maybe 2000, by USGS uh, about the Golden Gate. It's called Beyond the Golden Gate, Oceanography, Geology, Biology, and Environmental Issues in the Gulf of the Farallons. And in that publication, it talked about the status of the radioactive material that was known out there, and it was very well documented for the research. And at the time, it was a, a questionable location for the USS Independence. And what I'm, what I understand this year is that it was actually now we know exactly where it is based on the work that sanctuaries led. And I wonder if you could tell us a little, little bit about this. And this ship specifically was one that was there was concern for potential radioactive um, hazard for the environment. And what do we know about that right now? Sure. Well, let me start by saying Independence is one of those wrecks we'd cataloged. She didn't go down as an accident. She was sunk in January of 1951 by the Navy after her usefulness was over. Um, And with that, let me just say Independence was built as a small escort carrier uh, for the United States Navy, a light carrier, actually, CVL number 22. She was the first of her class. These were ships built quickly uh, as an emergency response, uh, put on the tops of the hulls that were already ready, already being constructed for cruisers. Uh, covered with a flight deck, they carried a small, you know, they're 500 feet long as opposed to the larger Essex class carriers, which were over 800 feet. They filled in a gap. They were absolutely important. Independence, or the India, she was known to her crew. Uh, did tremendous service out in the Pacific, fought a number of battles, was actually torpedoed and damaged, but remained afloat. It was the first carrier to bring the war in the Pacific uh, into the air and on the water at nighttime, doing round-the-clock operations, but particularly nighttime flying in operations, uh, meaning that the enemy couldn't really rest. At the end of the war, Independence was selected to be a ship that carried troops home for Operation Magic Carpet. And then, in 1946, was sent out to Bikini to be a target for the A-bomb test known as Operation Crossroads. Independence went through two blasts along with other ships. She was hit hard by the ABLE test blast of July 1, 1946, when the atomic bomb detonated a little better than a thousand yards away. Uh, the bomb set the Independence on fire, scorched and blasted and bent and twisted the, the ship, but did not sink it. It was then put into a new position, and on July 25th, 46, it was there with other vessels when the Baker blast, an underwater detonation, uh, coated it, as well as most of the other ships, with radioactive spray and fallout, which had just been lifted out of the bottom of the lagoon and then dumped back onto the target fleet. Hot, that is, radioactive, independence couldn't be immediately boarded, but was finally taken in tow brought the Kwajalein into Pearl Harbor and then into San Francisco, where as radiation levels declined, the Navy was able to study the ship more to figure out exactly what the bomb had done, which was the purpose of the tests, to examine test instruments placed on board, uh, including airplanes that had been set on her to see what the bomb would do to them. Remember, the whole idea of bikini wasn't just to blast ships with the bomb. It was to put them in different positions and see how a typical battle group would do with nuclear war 
how airplanes would function, what would happen to crews if they were at different locations or shielded by another vessel, what would happen if it was an airburst as opposed to an underwater burst. So independence was really a floating laboratory. But the Navy also figured the best use for her was to use her as a means by which they could train sailors in how to respond if their ship had gone through a nuclear attack. Remember, this is a different time, and these days we'll raise our eyebrows perhaps at such things, but back then, everybody was grappling with the newfound power of the bomb and what exactly it represented. And so guys were sent on board with Geiger counters to go down below to turn valves to see, to assess damage, to figure out what would be done to drill them in case the nation ever went through a, a nuclear attack. The levels of radiation declined, though. And so the Navy ended up actually having to go to radio to get radioactive material from reactors and sprayed some of that inside to make areas freshly hot. You know, not too hot, but hot enough for a Geiger counter to, to measure. That work happened from 1947 all the way through to 1950. But at that stage, independence is wearing out. She's a floating lab out at Hunter's Point in San Francisco, but she's not an active ship, so she's rusting. Things are starting to leak. And so the decision was made to take her out and sink her, but before they did that, the Navy decided that they would take waste, and by waste, not necessarily barrels full of glowing green goo, uh, something of that sort, but rather gloves, masks, respirators, boots, uh, equipment in laboratories, things that had become radioactively contaminated, as well as the byproducts of experiments, some, some undefined materials from labs, all placed in barrels, which were then filled with concrete. And then they took all these and put them inside independence. But as we've learned, they didn't just stack them down on the hangar deck. What they did is they went down into the engine rooms and the boiler spaces, cleaned those out. I mean, they took all that machinery away because they'd measured it and it wasn't radioactive. So they took it out and used it later uh, as a power plant at another Navy base on shore. And in that space, which is deep inside the hold and armored to help protect those engine spaces, they put all those barrels in, locked the doors, towed independence out, and sank her on January 25th, 1951, miles off the coast in waters they felt were deep, not only deep to get them out of the way, but they hoped as well to keep anything that might give a hint or a clue to a Soviet spy about how we made bombs or how we dealt with radiation to keep all of that out of the way in a time of great superstition, or I should say suspicion, um, and not unfounded. I mean, after all, the United States was in the middle of a of a spy scare. The Rosenbergs had been arrested and tried. Uh, there was this fear of active espionage. And in 1949, the Soviets, of course, detonated their own atomic bomb code named Joe One. So in all of that atmosphere of Cold War paranoia, independence was sent to the bottom in what today is Gulf of the Greater Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary. And recent tests are, so you recently mapped it, so now they know the exact location, and did they do follow-up testing to see, you know, 50-plus years later, any any levels of contamination detected? Well, we had the, measure, the measurements for radiation on the ship while it was at uh, Hunter's Point, and it didn't seem high. Understand that in talking to nuclear physicists, and I'm not one, nor do I play one on TV, but... They, they say that what made the independence radioactive 
was not only being exposed to the blast and being covered with fallout, but also the fact that the radiation turned the metal of the ship into the isotope of steel, so it became its own, you know, little radioactive source, but that it had a half-life of about seven years. So those levels started to drop fast, as I said. So we were interested in finding independence, and USGS had done a pretty good job. They had a spot that they thought was it, NOAA's ocean exploration ship, the Okanos Explorer, had gone over and had mapped the spot as well. But that spot on sonar, you know, if you looked at it, it, you know, you're talking about something thousands of feet down that's being looked at with sonar that's been mounted on the hull of a ship passing over. So it doesn't have the greatest resolution. So what we were able to do was working with NOAA's relationship with the Boeing company. They wanted to test their underwater autonomous robot, Echo Ranger. And so they funded a mission that we were able to participate in where Echo Ranger, departing from Half Moon Bay, went out and drove itself back and forth over that area and came back with a detailed sonar map of independence, showing us that the ship is upright, leaning to one side. The A-bomb blast damage is still very visible. You can see how the decks are warped, and you can see how a hole is dropped into the flight deck, and even with the sonar, what appears to be the outline of an airplane inside our hangar, which, according to the records, should be there. And there it was. But what we also did was measure radioactivity working with the uh, University of California and found none. So after all this time, independence is a calm, quiet reminder of a war, of a cold war. And I think for us, one of the most powerful things was Philip Wire who's a Bay Area resident and veteran of that ship, part of that greatest generation. Uh, Phil Wire was sought out and uh, was able to give his thoughts about that. And in this, I think, there, there we find the power of this stuff. It's not only science and better understanding what's out there and measuring a potential threat, which in this case is not there, but also a reminder that these things speak to the past and to people. And understanding that past, whether it's a war or, in this case, trying to prevent a nuclear war by testing nuclear weapons, as they believed at the time they could do, and that leaving a legacy behind, it really informs us more in and outside of marine sanctuaries about what we as humans continue to do as we interact with the oceans. I am so curious to hear what you think that uh, historians will find maybe 300 years from now on the ocean floor, and what do you think those stories will tell about humans in the most recent years? I think that we're going to see uh, an incredible amount of archaeology that not only looks at the ancient past, but in 300 years from now will be a more ancient past. And I think that what they're going to see is going to shock them. I think they're going to see that as a species we grew so large uh, that we had a dramatic impact on the oceans, particularly starting in the 19th, but going into the 20th and 21st centuries, and I would probably forecast beyond But what I'd hope they see at some stage is that in certain areas as they survey, they're going to say something happened. Something happened back then about 300 years ago where it looks like the species began to take a turn. They began to set areas aside as marine protected areas. And we've done some archival research. They called them marine sanctuaries. And look at that. It it actually made a difference. (laughs) I'm sure in other areas they're going to see 
other evidence, uh, the amount of garbage that we have dumped into the oceans, particularly plastics, which are not going to go away anytime soon, all of that is going to be there. And like all archaeology, it speaks to every aspect of the human experience, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the mundane, and the extraordinary. Wonderful. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents here on KWMR. I'm Jennifer Stuck, and I have Dr. Jim Delgado on the phone, a maritime historian with the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. Um, I wanted so every it seems like every wreck or plane thing, something we find on the seafloor, it has a different story. And as you were just talking about, tells a little bit about our our species at a time and. I wanted to ask a little bit about the Selja, and I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. It's not, from what I understand, this wreck found out here in the Greater Farallons led to his, an historic court case about the rights of way for ships passing. I wonder if you could talk about this story. Sure. Well, Selja is an interesting wreck in that Selja is a uh, an everyday kind of wreck. If you I mean, she's not a famous battleship. She's not a uh, the kind of a ship that, you know, you would say is a very, you know, rare or unique type. She was a workhorse cargo steamer. She was built uh, to work out of Norway, originally where she was constructed, and uh, built just to carry bulk freight around. In other words, she's sort of the, a truck on the highway, like many of the things that we see passing us day after day. And yet for all of that, I mean, there are folks, there's, there's moms and dads, there's people's brothers, cousins, husbands, wives that, that are out there driving these, that have lives, that have people that care about them and whose part in history or role in even everyday life in the economy is so important and yet understated or, or largely ignored. And so Selja's out there, just the everyday ship on the water, working back and forth, and towards the end of her life, is working under charter on the West Coast for the Portland and Asiatic Steamship Company, uh, carrying goods back and forth from the Far East back to uh, the, the West Coast, particularly the Pacific Northwest. And she's trading for goods back uh, in the, in the in, in Asia for lumber, timber, flour, things like that, particularly out of Portland, but also coming out of San Francisco. So in 1910, um, for example, you know, we know that she's carrying uh, out of Portland, uh, she's carrying 25,000 barrels of flour and 600,000 feet of Oregon lumber, and she was on her way to Hong Kong and then for Japan. So Selja is on one of her voyages out and doing her her business when the vessel uh, hit another ship the uh, the steamer beaver off point rays uh, november 22nd 1910 now it's a big ocean but the ocean has very defined traffic lanes i mean early mariners discovered that currents and the ways that the wind and water work together made for good spots to approach or come out of a, of a harbor, and that goes all the way out for many miles. So in the, the lanes that come out of the Golden Gate and head to the north or the south, there's a defined road, if you will, out there in the open water marked on charts that ships are supposed to, uh, to be out there on. So Selja is on her way. She has left. 
she's gone past Point Bonita. She's heading up towards Point Reyes, and they're in the fog when all of a sudden they hear the whistle of the beaver coming at them. Each of the ships signals each other, and they figure they're they're going to pass. And instead, as it happens, uh, they struck each other. And uh, Selja goes down to the bottom, supposedly with no loss of life. But as we've heard, uh, there may have been Asian crew on board who were not listed in the official record and who may have died in the ship. And again, not everything is known in the historic record. So Selja ends up being a very important case, actually, that helps define uh, the rules of the road. It goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. um, And finally, it's decided that... um, you know, there it helps set, shall we say, that it defines how ships are going to pass each other, even in a fog, and helps firm up the laws of, on the rules of the road. And therein, I guess, is its its moment in the history books. But let's not forget that when we actually went out there and found Selja off the shipping lane on the bottom, having struck and having violently torn and twisted, not only did we get this sense of the end of that ship, but also a reminder that. There, like so many of the rest of us, you go, you live your life, you, 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 for many of us, we exist in anonymity and we come and go, more or less anonymous in the big spread of the world and in history. But for those moments like this, when something ordinary is made extraordinary because of circumstances and lives on, perhaps not only as a legal footnote, but now that we've actually found the ship sitting on the bottom, a tangible reminder of a type of ship and a time and of one particular accident. For folks tuning in, this is KWMR Ocean Currents. The iTuna, this is another boat that just like about a month ago was researched and you and Bob were out there and offshore of Point Reyes. I think this is just six miles off the, the lighthouse, perhaps. Yes. And this boat has, what you were mentioning earlier, almost every single boat you've talked about has had multiple lives. It's not just a sailboat and then has its life. It's been turned into many different things. And the iTuna has had quite the story of many different lives. Um, what is its story? Well, Ituna is an early steamship built with an almost sailing ship hull, which is not unusual because it's, when it's built in 1886, even at the yard that it's built at in Scotland, right alongside they're building almost clipper-hulled steel and iron sailing ships that still engage in the general carrying trades, a number of them coming, by the way, to California, bringing all sorts of British commodities from cobblestones and glass and coal to then be offloaded, and then these ships would be loaded for the return trip home with grain from California's Central Valley at a time when we were the breadbasket of the world in California. So the Balclutha, which today is that massive three-masted ship at Hyde Street Pier at San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park, is built right alongside Ituna. And if you look at the two hulls in photographs, uh, there's some similarities, but Ituna is built while she has masts with a small diesel steam engine. And it's diesel engines have just, I should say not diesel, steam engine fired with diesel fuel. Um, and she's built not to carry cargo, but as a luxury yacht, uh, as a, a rich man's pleasure boat. And in this uh, goes out and roams around not a different type of yacht. There's two types of, uh, of, of yachtsmen. Uh, or and these days just you know lady and gentleman uh, yacht uh, aficionados back then it was a guy kind of thing <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, you have uh, 
you have those who would like to race and those who wish to rove the high seas. So racers and rovers. So Ituna is built as a rover, the idea being with luxury accommodations. She can go out on an extended voyage. You can take the waters and take the airs and go visit the Mediterranean or the Caribbean. And in this fashion, Ituna does serve well, um, owned later by a gentleman millionaire named Armour out of uh, Chicago. She's chartered for a while. I should say not chartered. He actually lends her and participates in the first anthropological and archaeological expedition of the Field Columbian Museum, today known as the Field Museum in Chicago. And they explore the Central American coast into a rough area. And bear in mind when they're doing this um, at the turn of the century and beyond, uh, the coast of Mexico is roiled with rebellion. You have bandits, you have other folks. And so strange places that people only know a name of but have not really visited are explored by these fellows who visit the locals, who of course never really were lost and knew it all along, but just the same. They're visiting these amazing places and putting them into the uh, the, the language of the time. They're visiting amazing places like this spot called Cancun. I kid you not. <laughs> and it's the first archaeological report of the Field Museum because, of course, some of the great Mayan ruins are there, both Chichen Itza and Tulum uh, among them. She goes through the Panama Canal finally and becomes a passenger ship after no longer being needed as a yacht. And then in 1916, um, after serving as a passenger yacht, the decisions made to convert the ship into uh, a fishing trawler, but also as a cargo boat carrying goods for fishing companies. So in 1920, fitted out with a refrigerated hold and with a cargo hold loaded with cement and machinery for Reedsport, Oregon, and with a new rig established on her deck, something called the Otter Trawl, which is two huge steam winches with a big net. The idea being you take the power of that ship and its engine to take a net and just sweep up everything you can out of the ocean to maximize your catch, to industrialize the fishery. Um... We think a little differently about these things now, but in those days it was, yep, as much as we can get, and you just weed through it and throw away what you don't want, but why we're going to get a lot of fish. So with that, Ituna's on her way, but uh, the power of the sea overcame her. And so uh, on her voyage, you know, what would be her, her final voyage, um, Ituna was caught in a storm and... Uh, on March 13, 1920, off of Point Reyes, is pounded, her seams open up, she goes to the bottom so quickly that two of the crew don't escape. They're drowned in the ship. The others in a lifeboat, having just barely gotten away, drift for hours and row until finally they reach the lightship and are rescued. But Ituna is gone, never to be seen again until uh, the latest expedition. But that expedition happens not just because we want to look, but because we also have a, a secret weapon. What is that? Gary Fabian is his name. <laughs> Gary is a guy who studies sonar. Now, a lot of people out there probably know that NOAA, as the Ocean Science Agency for the government, has an Office of Coast Survey, and they're constantly mapping the seabed, particularly in and around harbors, to ensure safe navigation, because even now, 90% of the the goods that come in and out of this country come by water. So Coast Survey does a lot of mapping. They see a lot of things on the bottom. Sometimes they get a sonar record. They mark, this may be a wreck, that might be a wreck, and that's it. Fabian studies all of that for us and comes back with a bit of the historical knowledge that he 
collaborate on with Bob Schwemmer. And they say, you know, this might be this, this might be that. And so in this case, they had a target that looked like a ship sitting on the bottom that was about the right size in about the area we thought Ituna may have gone down. And so for this year's mission, uh, a mission, again, that was supported by the wonderful donation of, uh, of technology and expertise from Teledyne Zebotics, who brought a couple of special instruments, uh, we were able to drop on down and, uh, as Bob would say, uh, we ha- we're looking for features that might say whether or not it was Ituna. And Ituna had a very distinct-looking bow, and within three seconds of the robot hovering over it, we turned to each other. Gary was with us. Gary, Bob, Jim, we all looked at each other and said, Ituna. <laughs> and there she was sitting upright on the bottom uh, a skeleton slowly shedding and peeling away the hull, but with everything lying exactly as it had come to rest. The cargo hold was still packed with the sacks of cement, which had just hardened into a near stone wall over time. Masts fallen, the steam trawl still there, and how ironic that a vessel built to industrially just vacuum the bottom of the sea now rests in a marine sanctuary and is a habitat for fish. I saw I saw some of the video footage and it looks like a really thriving reef with a ama- like I saw canary rockfish and they're definitely one of the overfished species. It looks like a very very healthy reef. It, it is, and I think that that's one of the things that these wrecks do over time. We were lucky to have L.J. Schramm with us from Greater Farallons, and she was the marine biologist for the cruise. We also had Jan Roletto one day with us as well from Farallons, and their job was to tell us archaeologists, and then for the record, for the sanctuary's research, to also say what was living down there, and all sorts of species, from anemones and uh, different types of fish to even some of the the bigger folks that we saw cruising around. uh, The cruise reminded us very much that we were in a sanctuary because of the the range of the marine mammals that we saw. We had whales breaching. We had all sorts of uh, encounters off in a distance. You could see uh, you know, all sorts of you know seals. We could see the sea lions out there. And uh, occasionally, I think, you know, off in the distance, uh, we had this sense, and occasionally we'd say, come by and see where somebody had just been feeding. Uh, even some of the sharks, and then, of course, the wide range of the of seabirds, particularly there around the Farallons. So in that, you know, again, I think part of what we do is each one of these cruises isn't just about maritime heritage. It's an opportunity to go out on the water and in the water and learn more about what's out there. And it's still an unexplored frontier. And also a reminder as to why these are special places, because of the history the marine biology, and the fact that right here off of California's central coast is a national treasure in so many ways that speaks to every aspect. And in the case of Ituna, again, people, human stories, ships, and how they tie to global patterns of history, the story of the two guys that died, uh, one of whom named for his uh, his deceased uncle, is still alive and shared his memories not only with us, but with the entire uh, region when he was interviewed by NBC. And as well, a reminder that sitting down there, these wrecks uh, are part of an ongoing interaction we've had with the ocean, our impacts on the ocean, whether we have fished them or whaled in them or dumped things into them. 
but also how over time, not only we influence the environment, but in the case of this wreck, how the environment is turning it. I want to interrupt here just for a minute because we are running out of time, and I really want to ask you this one final question, and I really appreciate the, the depth you bring to the cruises that it's more than just the maritime heritage and the looking at the whole thing, the whole picture, too. And certainly this area is one of the most outstanding around the world. This is one of the most productive ecosystems on the entire West Coast here. And I, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is this quote that I just read um, by Jim Studs Turkle, a radio host and oral historian on NPR. And he said, Americans today have no past. They live in the moment, think in the moment, and hence have no sense of the future. And without a past, there is no future. I'm wondering, and if you can do this in about two minutes, Jim, because you have lots to say, which is wonderful, but we're running out of time. Can you comment on that quote in context of the fact that the ocean is in a major crisis mode right now with extreme changes underway, and coastal communities and global communities are grappling with how to adapt? And how, what role do you feel maritime heritage can play in the context of this really trying time for the future? I think heritage, in a lot of ways, can speak to where we go. We learn from the past, hopefully, as a species. Not always, but we should. And I think while Western culture sometimes doesn't do that, indigenous cultures do. So whether or not we learn from the lessons of a shipwreck or see what's sitting on the bottom and are able to compare and contrast our actions of today with that, or say, hmm, you know, maybe we won't throw trash down there because it's not out of sight or out of mind. That's one way of looking at it. But I'll also say this. Off the coast, in both Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, those waters now cover what was once dry land. And more than 10,000 years ago, those lands were roamed not only by, by you know, flora, and fauna, the, the, you know, it covered them. I should say the flora covered them, the fauna roamed. But um, people. And those people, as well as indigenous peoples everywhere in the ancient world, were tremendously affected with the end of the last ice age when the sea level rose. And it rose dramatically, so much so that the Farallon Islands were once coastal mountains at the mouth of a great river. And people undoubtedly lived there, and we have that sense because the traditions of the Kashiapomo and the Coast Miwok and the Ohlone, they, they speak to this, as well as Chumash traditions down the coast. No matter where you go, people talk of this. and they're... So in those perspectives, not only in terms of traditional knowledge, but in the ongoing relationship that these peoples have had with the sea, I think we can learn something. Humanity has been through incredible change and a change in the oceans. And in those cases, survived and thrived. And peoples who once lived on those lands turned into people who fished and worked in those waters and sustained themselves and drew inspiration, but also had powerful connections spiritually with those, with those waters. And so I think heritage deals with all aspects of that and of our experience, whether it's ancient, whether it's modern, I think the key thing is we use the past as a means by which we can not only learn, but from which we can then move forward in what should be a continuous story of human enterprise, adaptation, flexibility, and also learning to be one 
with the world in which we live. Thank you, Jim. That's a wonderful way to wrap up talking with you and to look at our past to help with the future. And let's just hope we can learn really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and just beautiful stories to share and raise to the surface on All Souls Day here. And I just want to say thank you again for joining us here on Ocean Currents. I could have you on all year long, and we wouldn't even be able to touch the surface, I'm sure, of all the incredible stories that you know. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure, Jennifer. Take care. Take care, Jim. Okay. We've just been talking with Jim Delgado from the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, Director of Maritime Heritage, and hearing a little bit about some of the wrecks and ships that are off the coast here. There's over 400 that we know about. And as Jim was talking about the stories that they each share or each tell and that we're able to preserve and learn really help us to understand the past and really help us help us to look to the future to how we can better live and sustain in the ocean. When we come back in just a few moments, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the upper predators that visit this area this time of year, white sharks. And this is definitely a hot spot for them to come based on the prey that are here in the waters. So when we come back, we'll talk with David McGuire of Shark Stewards. Stay with us. Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. I'd like to welcome back David McGuire, a shark conservation activist that lives in the Bay Area and is also a research associate with the Cal Academy of Sciences. David, welcome. You're live on the air. Hi, Jenny. Great to be on your show again. Thanks for calling in. So Sharktober got started off with quite the cause for media attention this year. We've been hearing a lot about different shark stories in the area. What's going on out there? Well, it's no coincidence. We call the month around September to through November Sharktober. And it's the, re- the, the times of peak white shark activity along our coastline and consequently human white shark interactions. Uh, so it's, it's not unusual to see great white sharks off our coastline this time of year. The large sharks arrive in late August and September after about a 2,000-mile migration from an area just east of Hawaii, and they come to feed off of their preferred prey, which are elephant seals and, to a lesser degree, seals and sea lions out at the Gulf of the Farallons or uh, down at Anyo Nuevo or Drake's Bay or some areas where there are the rookeries of their prey. So these are also the months when most people have been bitten. Um, out of about 107 recorded attacks in California, 22 have occurred in, in October. So we're just past the peak month. It's still Sharktober in November, though. There's still a lot of activity, so we're definitely advising people to be cautious. And there haven't been any, any interactions that I've heard of, uh, at least up here. No, um, there was a kayak that got kind of shook up a little bit by a white shark in July off Pacifica. And, of course, we have seen that recent predation event inside the the bay that gathered a lot of media attention and excitement where the uh, seal was was bitten in front of a school of fifth graders or a group of fifth graders right at the Alcatraz ferry dock. That definitely made millions of YouTube hits, (laughs) uh, quite a bit of press and excitement, particularly among people like Guy who swim in the bay and actually swam from Alcatraz a few days later. <laughs> but uh, we just did a big swim yesterday across the bay, 10 miles, and we didn't see any sharks. And 
We don't think that there's been any um, confirmed or credible sightings, but there have been quite a few reports to me of what could be bottlenose dolphins or maybe people just a little bit excited and thinking they're seeing something they're not. Yeah, but bottlenose. It is possible, it is possible there are, uh, is another white shark of the bay. We know they come in and, and they typically don't hang out. They exit. And we see them off of Stinson and, and off of uh, Bolinas and off our coastline, particularly Dillon Beach in Marin County, the area of high activity. So, actually, I want to talk about this Alcatraz thing real quick because, you know, sharks aren't typically in a bay environment, especially because it's so shallow. And I was just wondering, is it because we have reduced freshwater runoff in the bay this year because of the drought that maybe the waters are a little bit more saltier than normal, that sharks might come in a little bit further than they normally would? Or are they just typically uh in there? The salinity of the front of the bay doesn't really change that much unless we have a, a you know a huge storm. Uh, it really the salinity is higher farther up the bay than, than normal, but the front of the bay is a, pretty much stays around ocean salinity just because of all that exchange from the, the big tides we have, or, you know, two f- high tides coming in flushing it out. Uh, the, the front of the bay is actually quite deep. It's 300 feet under the Golden Gate, and so all the way up to Angel Island, Alcatraz, you've got some pretty deep water. So, and that's typically from the tag uh, hits that we've seen are where the sharks kind of come in uh, through the gate, do this little meander around the front of Alcatraz and Angel Island. And that's also where, you know, Pier 39 has a lot of elf, I mean, a lot of uh, California sea lions. There are other species of sharks in the front of the bay, the seven gills, the six gills, soup fins, uh, all like those deeper waters out there as well. So it's possible that the white sharks are coming and preying on other, other sharks. Uh, Stanford, the Tagging and Pacific Predators Program, who has about 200 tags, uh, Sal Jorgensen, who leads the program, said that there's about 20 of, the, of those 200 have been observed in the bay. So meaning these are acoustic tags, and they give a little ping when they go by a receiver. Mm-hmm. So that means they're coming through, and they have been for years, um, and, and they typically don't reside in the bay. So, you know, the, the, the open ocean, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the front of the bay is more like a pelagic environment, and then you start to get towards the, the rear part, which is more estuarine. Good to know. So on October 16th, crazy wild sighting by the U.S. Coast Guard, it definitely got my attention about about 20 white sharks kind of in close proximity to each other. Um I don't know if they were all together or what, but I know you've been talking a lot with the media about this, so I thought I would ask you, what was going on that day? It's really weird to hear of a whole bunch of sharks being seen together. They're normally by themselves. Yeah, and I think you said it right, um, that they're in proximity. Uh, the white sharks don't school, and they typically don't hang around each other much. Um, they kind of beat up on each other, as a matter of fact. Um, so they need more room to roam, and they, like, and they prefer to be solitary hunters, although they will uh, all feed on, say, a whale carcass or something. Um, there was a, a sperm whale that washed up in Pacifica this year, and I was talking to Mary Jane Schramm at the Gulf of Fairland South Marine Sanctuary, and she was trying to determine what did they do with that whale. So typically they're taken offshore and uh, cast loose. And uh, so maybe that whale carcass or pieces of it are still around that attracted these sharks. Uh, looking at the Coast Guard, I had, have the photographs. They're actually on the sharkstewards.org site. And it looks like they're, they're dispersed over an area, and, it, and this is according to the Coast Guard spokesman also, 
between Pacifica and Ocean Beach. So that's, you know, anywhere between 12 and 15 miles of coastline. So they're not all in one spot, which would clearly be alarming if I was out surfing and I saw 20 white sharks, <laughs> particularly uh, those in the 18-foot range, which the lieutenant said at least one, possibly two. And the rest were probably juveniles, more on the 10-foot range. So we do know that there's a lot of juvenile sharks. We don't really have a count on the population. It's all based on estimates and modeling from photographs and, and some of the tags. Um, it, but we, we do think that there are, it does appear that there are more sightings along our coastline north of Conception. And that's probably due to these unseasonably warm water temperatures. Uh, fishermen will tell you there's a lot of crazy stuff out there off the Cordell Bank and off the Gulf of the Farallones. Um, a lot of subtropical species have been up here. Uh, hammerhead sharks, which are a, a tropical or subtropical species, are down off L.A. Uh, it's just a, a really weird year. Yeah, I've heard whale sharks at Catalina, which kind of blew me away. But, <laughs> That'd be cool. Oh, my gosh. Well, David, I'm sorry to cut you short We're towards the end of the show, but it's nice to hear you on the air and talking a little bit about what's going on. And, hey, it's great to have these top predators around. And one last plug can you mention um, about shark stewards and anything people can do to help raise awareness about the importance of sharks? I think that's the point is that we focus on white sharks, or the few species that can cause harm to humans, and we're neglecting the one-third of oceanic species that are threatened with extinction, um, including hammerhead sharks. So we're losing many species of sharks. Some are severely threatened, and they're important to the health of the, of the food chain. So, you know, we use Sharktober to educate and celebrate sharks. Of course, we need to be cautious while in the water, but it's not going to stop me from going in. And just to, you know, prevail upon people to use common sense, read the signs of nature. And you can learn more on how to avoid a white shark attack or support our work at sharkstewards.org. Thanks so much for coming on the air, and we'll talk thank to you, you soon. Thank you. show. We had a busy show, and I just want to say thank you. We had a big talk about maritime history and maritime heritage off the coast here. We had some updates about white sharks in the area and staying alert if you're an ocean user, for sure. And it's a great time of year to get out to the coast to see some of the marine mammals returning as elephant seals come back in late November to the Point Reyes area, Nanya Nuevo, you never know. You might see one of their predators around, too, as the fifth graders did out at Alcatraz. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. It's part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1, you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. And I have a podcast. You can go to iTunes at cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me, cordellbank at noaa.gov. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the Ocean Bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin, KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.
Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.